Our sermon this morning is based on this passage from Mark 2, 23 through chapter 3, verse 6, which you can find on the insert in your bulletin. Hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill, but they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Our Heavenly Father, we bring before you this day, these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings, and we do so in response to your giving to us, uh, not only giving us all temporal blessings that we enjoy in this life, but you are the God who gave to us your only son, gave him in order that we might have life in him. And so, Father, we, pray, we give these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings out of gratitude for all that you have done For us in Jesus Christ. And we ask that you would use these gifts. For the furthering of your kingdom in this world. And for the advancement of your gospel throughout the world. In order that many would come to know. And find life and rest and peace in Jesus. Father even as we pray this morning. For the gospel to be proclaimed throughout the world. And for your kingdom to be advanced throughout the world. We pray. That your kingdom would be advanced this morning and that your gospel would be proclaimed this very day in our midst. And no matter where we come from this morning, tired, heavily burdened, anxious. Feeling the truth of our hypocrisy in our lives. Rejoicing that we have never. We could never remember a day when we have walked any closer with Jesus than today, no matter how we come today. We pray that you would help us to understand that we really are all the same. The truth is that we are all far more broken than we know and can even imagine. And so, Father, we stand in need of the very same thing. We together stand in need of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to know that though we are far more broken than we can imagine because of Jesus and his person and his work, we are also far more loved and far more secure, far more approved of and far more accepted than we could have ever dreamed possible. 
And so we pray this morning that you would allow us with the eyes of faith to see our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Please be seated. At this time, uh, we would dismiss also the children uh, to Children's Church, children ages three to six. You're dismissed now to the back of the sanctuary into Children's Church. Well, over the next four weeks, we've been studying the parables in Luke's gospel together over the the fall semester. Uh, But over the next four weeks, we're going to turn our attention on Sunday mornings uh, to the Christmas story and the celebration of Advent. And, you know, Advent is a celebration of Jesus's coming into the world. And so during this Advent season, I want us to consider together the hope and promise of Christmas, that Christmas is the celebration of Jesus coming into the world, but what does that really and practically mean for us? And this morning I want to look with you at this passage that we read earlier in the Gospel of Mark to see the hope and the promise of rest that Jesus brought to us. You know, a few years ago, my wife Jennifer, she, um, she started having ear trouble. Um, and at first she started noticing that when we were at places that were loud, you know, at a party or at a restaurant or something like that, she was having a lot of trouble hearing and following the conversations around her. Um, And then she started, it got worse, and she was growing increasingly sensitive to even, uh, to particular sounds, even when it was was quiet. It was causing her some severe pain and these earaches, and um, it was getting very uncomfortable for her. And so, she decided finally to go to the doctor and see what was going on. And uh, she told this doctor about the symptoms she was experiencing, all the things I just mentioned to you. And, uh, and so he proceeded to give her a very thorough hearing exam. Um, and the interesting thing was that she'd been having all this, this trouble with her ears and all this, this hearing trouble. Um, but the interesting thing was that when he checked her ears, he found out that her hearing was excellent, that it was even above normal. Um, so what was the, the deal? The doctor told her, ended up telling her that she didn't have a problem with her ears, but what she had was a problem with her jaw. Um, and she had TMD, temporomandibular disorder. And basically, her jaw had become inflamed and ag- aggravated, and it was causing all these problems with her ears and her hearing. You know, sometimes... Um, it takes a crisis, you know, uh, uh, an earache, you know, being unable to hear, uh, to discover what the real problem is. And, and that's what a good doctor does for us, right? You know, he, he meets us in the crisis, in the pain, and in the discomfort. Uh, but he doesn't just treat the symptoms, right? His job in the midst of that crisis is to trace the symptoms to the root cause of the problem. Now, Believe it or not, um, that's kind of what's happening in this passage here in Mark chapter 2 and the beginning of Mark chapter 3. This passage is about a moment of crisis. Okay, See, actually, this section of Mark's gospel that's bigger than just what we read, this section of Mark's gospel contains a series of stories involving conflict. And And you see here that the Pharisees are angry. But Jesus is also angry, right? Tempers are flaring. And here we get two stories of conflict over the Sabbath day. And in the midst of this crisis, the symptoms expose what's really going on. Yes, it's an argument about the Sabbath day, but the crisis reveals 
What it reveals is a fundamental difference in the Pharisees' approach to the law and Jesus' approach to the law. To paraphrase another uh, preacher who helped me understand this passage, you see in the Pharisees a religious approach to the law. And in Jesus, you see a gospel approach to the law. Two very different approaches to the law. And it's the conflict, the crisis that shows us that Jesus didn't come into this world to revamp or reinvigorate religion or, or to give, it, give religion a helpful boost in the right direction, right? No, Jesus came to do away with the religious approach to the law and to replace it entirely with himself. He came to give you and me the hope and promise of rest in himself. And this morning, I want you to see the difference in these two approaches to the law, religious approach and a gospel approach, because the difference between these two approaches to the law is not small, right? It's the difference between slavery and freedom, right? It's the difference between anxious striving and peace. It's the difference between burden and rest. And so first, I want us to see what this passage shows us about the burden of religion, the Pharisees' approach to the law. You know, the Pharisees, um, they loved God's law. They absolutely loved God's law. They followed the law and they wanted everyone around them to follow the law as well. In their day, in this time period, you know, Rome was the occupying power, right? The, the occupying government. And when Rome came and set up shop anywhere, they brought their pagan culture with them. They brought their pagan practices with them. And so the Pharisees, they were resisting this pagan culture that was encroaching upon them, right? They wanted God's law to be protected. They wanted it to be honored. They didn't want there to be any compromises to God's law. I mean, these guys, you know, they would have definitely been on the front lines in our own country of fighting for prayer in schools, right? And the Ten Commandments being posted in the courtroom. I mean, they loved God's law. And in our day, they would have appeared to be very, very religious, right? So what was their problem? The law. Things like the Sabbath day, which is the fourth commandment. It had become a way for them to secure God's love and acceptance and approval, right? Religion was if then for them. You know what I mean? It, religion was, if I obey, then God will love me, right? If I'm disciplined, then God will approve of me, right? If I'm sincere enough, then God will take care of me and will bless me and on and on we could go. It's if then, right? But you have to notice the irony here, particularly in our passage. The Pharisees and Jesus, they're arguing over the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment, which was a command about a day of rest, right? But if you approach any law, much less the Sabbath day, by saying, if I do this, then God will love me, accept me, or, or whatever. Or if I fail, then God will not accept me and reject me. You wind up completely burdened and as far from rest as you could possibly be. Like you see, for them, and maybe for some of you this morning, performance was everything, right? The Pharisees in this passage, they get into two arguments with Jesus about the Sabbath day. And the first instance involves Jesus' disciples picking heads of grain along their way, right? 
They have concerned themselves with every possible detail of God's law because to mess up was to lose God's favor. Right. And so the Pharisees, they had a long list of things, a prescribed list of things you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. Thirty nine types of activity, to be precise. Right. And so they said things like if you're out walking on the Sabbath day after every fifth step you took. You had to pause and take a rest before you took that sixth step. Because they, di- they didn't want anyone working on this day, right? And, and they, they said that women couldn't wear ribbons in their hair on the Sabbath day because that would be to carry a burden, right? This is how detailed they were. Like you couldn't, you couldn't walk around and carry a stick behind you and drag it on the ground because the Pharisees would say, well, that's plowing the earth. And that's working. You can't do that. And they also said you couldn't pick grains, uh, pick the heads of grains, right? Because that would be reaping and that would be working. There's no room for rest with this kind of approach to the law. Have you done enough? Have you done everything right? You know, did you miss anything on the checklist? Have you read your Bible enough? Have you prayed enough, right? Have you felt sincere enough? Have you served enough or sacrificed enough? Gone on enough mission trips? Talked to enough people about Jesus? You know, all of those things are good things. Praying and reading your Bible and talking to people about Jesus. But can't you feel the burden of it here? If then, only if I do these things and do them well enough, will I be accepted and approved? Look, when you approach God's law like this, don't you realize that you are always going to be waffling between a superiority complex on the one hand and an inferiority complex on the other hand? Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Because as long as you feel that you're measuring up, doing enough, not dropping any balls, and keeping your morality in check, well then... You certainly feel superior to those around you who aren't keeping up with you, right? Those you are better than, more spiritual than, you know, the man or woman who hasn't measured up next to you. Certainly no room for compassion with this kind of approach to the law. But the flip side of that coin is the anxiety, right? The wondering, the worrying, have you really done enough? What about yesterday? And why should God ever love someone like you, right? And it's got some of you so tied in knots, right, that you waffle between superiority and inferiority dozens of times in just a given day. The treadmill of religion, it is flat out exhausting. Why? Because it's all about you and your performance. You're either wallowing in shame and fear or proud and arrogant, and you are perpetuating and creating an evil far greater than even you can imagine at this moment. I mean, because, see, here comes the second story of the about the Sabbath in chapter three. And it's a story of Jesus healing this man with a shriveled hand. And look, they don't have an answer to Jesus's question in chapter three, verse four. Right. Jesus asked them this question. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? And Mark records for us that they were silent That's got to be a little alarming for you this morning. That they didn't have an answer if it's lawful to save life or to kill on the Sabbath day. I mean, you look at that question again. That is a softball question, you know. I mean, you turn on that pitch and you send it out over the left field fence. Easy question, right? 
But the fear, the shame and the pride and the arrogance has turned them hard and calloused and evil. They're keeping the code and mastering the performance. It kept them from compassion and from mercy and from doing good and saving lives. Right. And doesn't that reveal something particularly problematic with religion? Right. Religion might do a lot for your appearance. But one thing religion can't do is it can't touch your heart and it cannot change your motives. It can't change your heart. Not too long ago, I came across this really interesting interview. Um, I haven't read this book yet, but uh, there's a book written by a guy named A.J. Jacobs, and it's titled The Year of Living Biblically. Uh, I don't know if maybe some of you have read that. It came out about four or five years ago. Anyway, this guy went through the Bible and he distilled some 700 laws in the Bible. And he committed himself to obeying all of those laws for an entire year. No matter how strange it looked, he committed himself to obeying all 700-something laws for an entire year. And the interview was about his experience in this little project that he undertook. And he, he did all this stuff, but at the very beginning, he was... He was very, very honest, and he said that there was one thing he couldn't do anything about. He said, and this is a quote from the interview, he said, at the end of the day, I was still a coveter. And some, some of you know that that sounds very familiar to the Apostle Paul's experience, right? Um, but you know what he's saying here? He's saying, I did it all. I was concerned with every possible detail. My performance was immaculate, right? But I couldn't do anything about my heart and my motives. In fact, he started the, the year not believing in God. And he kept 700-something biblical laws for an entire year. And he ended the year an atheist as well, not believing in God. You know, I, I'm telling you, the law, religion, it cannot change you. And it cannot change your heart. It's possible to do all the right things and never know God. To have a heart that is truly far, far from him. I remember this one time when someone um, criticized my, my preaching, which is totally fair and legitimate. Um, but this person said, basically, you know, I, I, I like the sermons, um, but there isn't enough application. There's not enough for me to do. And, you know just being an insecure preacher, which most, most of us preachers are, um, I went home and told my wife. It's kind of like going home and telling your mommy. Um, and, uh, and, you know, my wife listened to what I said, and, and she saw through that criticism and diagnosed it very well. And I remember her saying, you know, this particular person who won't be named, um, that person just doesn't want Jesus. They want a to-do list. You know, poor Pharisees, you know, they become easy, easy targets for us, I know, to attack. We do it all the time. But listen, the Bible is constantly diagnosing all of humanity like this. Not just the Pharisees, but you and I, we don't want Jesus, right? We are trying to be our own saviors. That's the whole story of the Bible. That we are trying to be our own saviors. And you can do that religiously or you can do that rebelliously. Right. We're checking off the list in some way, avoiding dealing with our hearts. You know, we are a a restless, restless people. And you can read all kinds of books and articles about this. Americans have the market cornered in restlessness, you know, and there's all kinds of data to back this stuff up. And it isn't just your jobs and your careers, although 
that's out of control as well. But it's our gluttonous drive for entertainment and our addictions to our hobbies and our statuses, right? And teenagers, our addictions to our statuses on Facebook and, you know, Instagram posts or whatever. It's so hard for us to put any of that stuff away and really rest. And, you know, yes, life is busy, but I want to suggest to you that there is a deeper reason for our restlessness than just that life is busy. Silence, I think, scares us to death. I mean, silence is just creepy to us. Right. I don't know if you've ever noticed this with all of our sound machines and all the way we busy ourselves to avoid real silence. We are always trying to distract ourselves from the silence. And I'm not just talking about a literal silence. Right. We busy ourselves with activity and we entertain and we work ourselves to death and we retreat to substance abuse and all kinds of things. Why is that? It's because in the silence, we feel burdened. We don't know if we've done enough. Right. Or maybe we feel like we've blown it too big this time. And the silence scares us because we don't want to think about who we really are. In the silence, we have to deal with our hearts. And that is a terrifying prospect for us. You know what Jesus is telling the Pharisees here? He is saying you can be ultra concerned with keeping the law. Ultra concerned with keeping the Sabbath. This day of rest and never Find rest for your souls. If you try and relate to God on the basis of your performance in this life, the silence is always going to terrify you and you will never be able to rest. Okay, second. Well, then what what is, you know, what what is our other option for relating to God? You know, you can either try relating to God on the basis of your performance or. And this is the second point, or you can relate to God. On the, based on the performance of Jesus. And that's the second point. That's what we want to talk about. The rest of the gospel. You know, the Pharisees and Jesus, they, they argued over a lot of things, right? Um, you, you, you might even have never read a single verse in the Bible, but you might know still that the Pharisees and Jesus didn't get along. But I think it's real interesting that, that slammed together in Mark, you have these two stories back to back this uh, the, about these arguments over the Sabbath day of all things, the Sabbath, this day of rest. But then right in the middle, you have this tremendously outrageous statement that Jesus makes. You know, first, he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, he's saying the Sabbath reaches far back into history, all the way back to creation, in fact. Right. The Sabbath was, he's saying, was God's gift to man. It was made for him. You need a break. You need to physically rest. The Sabbath was meant for your well-being. This is why Jesus brings up this story about David and his friends eating the consecrated bread. He's making the point that God's law is not meant to hurt you or to burden you. It's, it's meant for your good and for your well-being. He's making the point that God's law is never meant, has never been intended to hurt you, but it's for your good. Now, forgive me for just a, a little jaunt down a rabbit trail here, but I, I want you to think with me and consider when God's people received this law. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments, right? To honor the Sabbath day. God's people first heard this law right after, right after God had delivered them 
from slavery in Egypt, right? And they've gathered together and assembled at this mountain, right? To hear God give his law. And you remember this scene, right? And then all of a sudden, these former slaves gathered at the foot of the mountain hear this command to stop working one day out of seven, right? Can you just for a second, imagine how that sounded to slaves who were continually forced to make bricks without straw, right? Their time wasn't their own. They were never allowed to rest. And God comes and he says, I command you. This is not an option. I command you to rest. I command you to take a holiday. I command you to stop working. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath day. It is for your good. All of God's laws are like that. They are about the restoration of your humanity, not the diminishing of it. They they are about making you what you were meant to be in this life. I wish I could do much more with that, but I need to move on because I really want you to see here in this passage what the Sabbath has to say about Jesus himself. So if you're still with me in verse 28, we get this really outrageous statement that Jesus makes. He says, so the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. That's it. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. You know, he could have said, I have the authority to change the Sabbath. But he doesn't say that. You know, he could have said, I am Lord over the Sabbath and therefore I can change the rules if I want. But he doesn't say that. He when I when we started, I told you that Jesus didn't come to change religion or to revamp it. He came to do away with it and replace it with himself. So what Jesus is saying here, he is saying, I am the Sabbath. I am the fulfillment of the Sabbath. I am the rest you need. Don't you see how Jesus is bursting through their categories here? He's saying, if you really want to find rest, you will only ever find it in me. How can you get to a place where the silence will stop terrifying you and won't scare you to death? What is it that is going to free you from the burden, the fear and the guilt and the pride and the arrogance, the superiority complex on the one hand and the inferiority complex on the other hand? Jesus is saying, stop trusting in your performance and trust in mine. That is when, that is when you will find rest and the silence won't terrify you. I I want you to listen to four verses out of the book of Hebrews. This is chapter four in Hebrews that I think will help you understand what we're talking about here. It says this, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the gospel preached to us just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them because those who heard it did not combine it with faith. And he says this. Now we who have believed enter that rest. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work. How do you get this rest that we're talking about? You get this rest when you can finally put put the checklist down and stop trusting in your own performance. You get this rest by believing. We who have believed, the author of Hebrews says, 
enter that rest by trusting in the work of Jesus in our place. Listen, the Pharisees, they're angry with Jesus in this passage. It's pretty obvious, right? Why? Because Jesus is not affirming their approach to the law when he when he lets his disciples eat grain when they're hungry and he heals this man with the shriveled hand. But they are not the only ones who are angry on this occasion. Right. In chapter three, verse five, we're told that Jesus himself was angry. Right. He looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. The Sabbath is about rest. It's about restoration of the diminished. It's about replenishing the drained. It's about repairing the broken, right? It's about refilling the empty. And Jesus is angry because they don't realize that the Sabbath day was about him. He is the Lord of the Sabbath and he alone can restore and replenish and repair and refill you. I mean, why do you think Mark puts these stories right at the beginning of his account of the life and death of Jesus, right? Why do you think as soon as he announces Jesus, he tells you about this crisis? It's because he wants you and me to see why Jesus came into this world. He has come to free you from looking at your performance so that you can look at his spotless performance and find rest. He has come to say, if you are broken, stop looking at yourself and look at me. I am the only one who can heal your shriveled heart. In the very last verse, we're told that the Pharisees, they went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Like I said just a second ago, this is only the very beginning of Mark's gospel account. Why does Mark clue you into that at the very beginning of his telling this story? This is the first time their plot shows up in Mark's gospel. You know, if this were a movie, right? The, the background music would dramatically change at this point, right? To clue you in on what's going on. Why does Mark do this? It's because he wants you to see for that, that for you to get rest in Jesus, the only way that that can happen is for him to carry your burden to the cross, for him to take the death you deserved. And when he died, he set you and me free. Free to rest and free to become what we were meant to be. You know, I was flipping through um, the channels on my TV one day and I landed on this documentary of uh, 9-11. And they were interviewing different people who were, who were there in New York on that day. And one man they interviewed was this older man and his name was Louis Lesh. And Louis, he just, I, I wish I, I could show you the video because he just looked like he was from New York, you know. He, he was an older gentleman, but he was, just had that hardened, weathered kind of, kind of look, you know, and he had this deep, gruff voice to match it, right? And he, he, was, a, he was a worker in the North Tower, and he, just, he was describing his descent in the stairwell when they were evacuating that tower. And this is what he said. I wrote it down. He said, I'm going down, and there was a point where we stopped. And this fireman was on the same step as me. He looked at me and I looked at him. And that look, he knew where he was going and I didn't. And that's what I found very, very interesting. And by the way, I'm leaving out some of the cuss words and, uh, and some of the tears that, that are just streaming down this man's face when he's saying this. 
he's, he's, he goes on and he says, he knew exactly where he was going. And he didn't miss a step. And I knew where I was going. And I was tripping. And he breaks down in tears. And he says, I thought that was magnificent. You see, what Mark wants you to see at the end of this passage is that Jesus knew where he was going. He was headed to a cross. And he didn't miss a step. He came into this world to go to the cross for you. And he didn't miss a step. And that is magnificent. That is how we find deep rest. The deep rest we were made to have in this life. In religion, the law can't change you, right? I mean, it can't deal with the mess in your heart and really change who you are. You can even obey like the guy who wrote the book that we were talking about earlier and never know God. But listen to me, Mark is saying, the gospel can really change you. And it can change you from the inside out. A person named Jesus can change you. How? Because he came and he said, I know where I'm going. I'm going to take your burden to a cross. And he didn't miss a step. And he said, I'll deal with your brokenness there. And I'll take the punishment you deserve and give you a righteousness that you didn't earn. Please don't leave this passage confused. Jesus isn't saying here, don't obey the law. He is saying, when you find rest in me, you will be freed to obey. You will be freed to obey with delight and with joy. Because you see, religion always says, if I obey, then God will love me. But Jesus is saying, obey me because I love you this much that I didn't miss a step to the cross. This Christmas season, I want to encourage you to spend time celebrating this throughout the next coming weeks, that Jesus didn't come into this world to revamp and reinvigorate religion. He came into this world to do away with that kind of approach to the law and to replace it with himself. He came to give you and me hope. He came to give us the promise of rest that can be found in him. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we we confess that we are often consumed with our performance. And we are often in this life trying to be our own saviors. Trying to live up to a checklist, trying to keep the law and merit your love. Trying through our discipline and through our sincerity to please you. And Father, we pray that you would help us to put our deadly doing down and come and find rest in Jesus. To stop trusting in our own performance, but to trust in the performance of Jesus and find rest in Him. That He came, He lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we should have died in order that in Him, we might find the deep rest our souls long for. Father, we pray that you would give us such a deep rest in Jesus that the silence will no longer terrify us. But that in the silence, we would be reminded that though we are broken far more than we can imagine, we are also far more loved 
and accepted and secure than we could have ever dreamed possible. Because our Savior came into this world. He came into this world to go to the cross for us. And He didn't miss a step. Help us, Father, find our rest in Jesus, in whose name we do pray. Amen.